Welcome to the Guardians of Grace podcast. Relax, you have found the right place. We're here to serve. Join us, holding to pure grace. Again, relax, join in with us. Listen on, be blessed. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to another edition of the Guardians of Grace podcast. My name is Steve, and you can tell by the how the voice sounds that Bill isn't here. The cares of the world apprehended Bill again, so you've got me to do the podcast with, and hopefully that's a good thing. I know it is for me because I get to share things that are on my heart, and today's not any different. I have something that I want to share with you, and it stems from last week's podcast where we were going through Romans chapter 6, and I was saying that I wanted to get up on a soapbox and Bill said we'll we'll get you up on that soapbox but I actually feel like I I never did get up on the soapbox so I want to go over the idea of just how much a dry grammatical study of the Greek language can cause the Bible to just light up, to just light up. You'll never read the Bible the same again, and you'll see that all the glory, all the glory goes to God. He deserves all the glory, and you'll see how this Bible is talking with words that point you in the direction of giving him the glory that he rightly deserves. But last week we were trying to bring out how important the thought of the way, grammatically speaking, passive voice plays into the scheme of things for the Christian. I want to talk about the dry subject of passive and active voice in the English and the Greek language. The Greek language actually brings it out much more than the English language does. I'm talking about the verbs that the English language and the Greek language use, the way in which they use the verbs. And these verbs can have a a tense, past, future, present, and in the Greek, they actually have more tenses than the English does, and there's a few places in which there are Greek tenses that there is not an English equivalent to, but they also have something called the voice and the mood. The the mood is the imperative mood, which is a command or something telling you to do phrases and sentences that tell you to do. 
something. That's called the imperative mood. Verbs that tell you to do something are imperative verbs. Then there are verbs that are indicative statements or declaratives. They're statements of fact. I'm telling you something that is a fact. Johnny climbed the apple tree. The verb climb is a statement of fact. He did do that. It wasn't like the imperative mood where you would tell Johnny to climb the apple tree. This is Johnny climb the apple tree, and that is an indicative statement, a statement of fact. And in grammar, there is what is known as the voice, which can be the active voice, the passive voice, middle voice, some voices that English, the English language, doesn't have an equivalent to, once again, the Greek does, but the English does not have an equivalent to what the Greek does. So with that in mind, last week we were zeroing in on the voice of a verb, the voice of a verb, whether it was active or passive, active voice would be Johnny hit the ball, passive voice would be the ball hit Johnny. We were zeroing in and taking a look at how it affects the scriptures and how it affects our interpretation of the scriptures and how it affects the doctrines that the Bible teaches us because we want to have those doctrines clear. It's the indicative mood of a verb that gives us most of our doctrines. Our doctrines come from indicative or declarative statements, stating that this is a fact, like Jesus died on the cross. Well, that's an indicative mood it's a statement of fact, and it's also one of the most important Christian doctrines that we have. Jesus was raised from the dead, an indicative statement found in the Bible. Another very important doctrine. We believe as Christians that Jesus was raised from the dead. And so those indicative statements give us most of our doctrines, if not all of them. And once again, let me apologize for saying that we're going to do a, a dry grammar Bible study, but I believe we'll get into some rev too. We'll get some good old rev out of this as well. So with that in mind, let's go back to Romans chapter 6 because I want to go over the thought that we were trying to make in last week's podcast a little bit more and then we're going to allow that thought to branch out through the whole Bible and show just how much of an impact it has 
on this Bible that we read because once you're turned on to the idea, when you read the Bible, you will see these verbs now and you'll be able to tell yourself whether that's in the active voice or the passive voice, whether you get the credit for what is being done or God in you gets the credit. You'll see by the structure of the verse itself or the sentence in the verse, you'll see by the structure and how the verb is placed into the sentence and which voice it is, active or passive, and you'll be able to see that the Bible is telling us where to give credit quite a bit in the New Testament, in the epistles, in, in the gospels. And we'll see that it's basically, we're talking about whether to give the human edemic nature the credit for what is being done by a Christian or give the Spirit of God the credit for what is being done through a Christian on any given day. That's where the rubber meets the road and that's what I want to look at. Back in another run at Romans 6, starting maybe in verse 13, where it says, it gives us an imperative mood. It is giving us a command. It says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust and do not go on presenting the members of your body as instrument or weapons of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and the, your members as weapons of righteousness to God. So here we've got a command. It says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Well, that's what Israel was told 2,000 years ago, and all we ever read in the Old Testament was the futility of Israel not allowing sin to reign in their, their, their bodies, in the members of their bodies. Matter of fact, that idea about sin reigning in your body is as old as Genesis chapter 5. For the very beginning of the book where Cain and Abel were giving sacrifices to God and Abel's sacrifice was acceptable, but Cain's wasn't. And God said, Cain, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have control over you, but you must master it. That's the exact same command you see here in Romans 6. And do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. Cain, do not let sin master you that you would obey its lust. Well, Cain ended up killing Abel. 
because sin won, sin mastered Cain and caused him to kill his brother. Do you think Cain really wanted to kill his brother? No, sin caused him to do what he didn't want to do. And from that day forward, sin has been reigning in each and every human on the planet and has it, it's sin has been reigning in them is what I was trying to say. Sin has been reigning in every human being on the planet and it reigns over their human nature, the nature they received at birth, better known as the edemic nature. That's what the scholars call, call it. The nature of Adam that every man, woman, and child has. This command is, is saying the same thing. And from Genesis 4 till now, we know that this command has never been accomplished to master sin in our bodies. But it says, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its lust and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments or weapons of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who are alive from the dead and your members as weapons of righteousness to God. For sin won't be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. So there is, for the first time ever mentioned in the Bible, the idea that sin will not be our master because everywhere else sin was our master even at the time of this commandment where it says don't let sin reign in your body well sin did reign in our body and here it's saying you can maybe win this war because you're not under law but under grace then it goes on to say, do you not know when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedient, you are slaves to the one you obey, either sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. It says when you present yourself to someone as slave, could that be telling us that when we are not under law, sin is our master? Or do you think it means when we are under law, sin is our master? Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. If we present ourselves to grace, are we not presenting our members as slaves to obedience when we present ourselves to grace? And when we present ourselves to the law, are we not causing sin to be our master? It's just a question I want to ask, but 
This is bringing up the question, do you not know when you present yourselves to someone? It begs the question, do we have the choice to present ourselves to one or the other? Because if I have a choice not to present the members of my body to sin as an instrument for unrighteousness, that's what I choose. I choose not to. And I think everybody that can hear the sound of my voice makes the same choice. What is this passage trying to tell us about that choice? It says, don't you know when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to them? When you present yourself as slaves for obedience, The question is, can we present ourselves to one? Do we have the choice to present ourselves to either sin or obedience? Do we have the choice? I'm submitting to you that that question is what is being addressed in this passage. Let me say that again. I'm submitting to you that That particular question is being addressed in this passage, and I might as well just boldly say it is telling us, no, we don't have the ability to choose one or the other. We don't. Let me go on with the passage and bring out that point. It says, don't you know when you present yourselves to somebody as slaves of obedience, you are slaves to the one you obey. Then it says, thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you are now committed. That's active voice. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you are now committed. But it said, thanks be to God that you active voice made that choice. That It says, thanks be to God that you made that choice. And then the rest of the sentence, let, let me just read this sentence again. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you are now committed, having been freed from sin, passive voice, you became slaves of righteousness, passive voice. He thanked God because We made that switch, and it was passive voice. It was done for us. We were freed from sin and enslaved to God. We did not free ourselves and enslave ourselves because that was what was asked of us in Romans 6, 13, when it said, don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts and don't go on presenting the members of your body as instruments of sin, but present your members of your body as instruments of righteousness. It was saying, make a choice. Here, it tells us we have to thank God when we made that choice because 
the truth of the matter, and this is where the indicative statement comes in, the indicative statement says, you have been freed from sin, passive voice, and you became slaves of righteousness, passive voice. You didn't do it yourself. That's the indicative statement. That's the statement of fact concerning this subject of whether you have the ability to present yourself to sin or present yourself to righteousness. It said, God did it for you. That's why we were thanking God. The indicative statement on the subject was God did it for you. You did not get credit. Then he goes on to say, because he's still trying to nail this subject down, the subject of do we have the choice to present ourselves as slaves to sin or slaves to God? Do we have that choice is the million-dollar question. And as the writer of Romans, which is Paul, goes on to tangle with this question, he says in verse 19, I'm going to speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. I'm, I'm going to be sarcastic because of the weakness of your flesh. And then he says, just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to re righteousness resulting in sanctification. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, because of the fact that you can't do this. I'm posing this question again. I'm giving you the challenge one more time. Do you have the choice to do this? I'm asking you after I just told you point blank indicative statement that you were freed passive voice from sin and enslaved passive voice to righteousness. After I just told you that, I'm going to sarcastically ask you to do it again, rhetorically ask you to do it again. And why would I say that? Because He's saying, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Everything that he's talking about here in Romans 6, he expounds on and he unpacks in Romans 7. But when he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, th this is kind of what he's talking about. It, Romans 7, 5, for while you were in the flesh, in the weakness of your flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of your body to bear fruit for death. While you were in your human strength and capability, the law aroused the sinful passions 
in your members. That's why it says don't present your members to righteousness. And he says, I'm telling you that because of the weakness of your flesh, I'm giving you the challenge to present your members as slaves to one or the other. He says, well, in Romans 7, it, it says when we're in the human effort, sinful passions are aroused by the law in our members. And look at what he goes on to say about those sinful passions which were aroused by the law. Do you remember in, in 7.14 where he says the law is spiritual, spiritual, but I am a human sold into bondage to sin. I'm a slave of sin in my humanity, Paul said. That's why the rhetorical question, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, because in your flesh, in your human nature and in your human capabilities, you are in bondage to sin. And when the law comes in, it arouses those sinful passions that you are in bondage to, and it causes you to sin because you're not free from it. That's why it says, in my human strength, I do the very thing I do not wish to do, even though I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So, if it's me doing the very sin which I do not want to do, it's no longer me doing it, but it's sin that lives in me. That's what causes you not to be able to present your members to righteousness because you are in bondage to sin and sin works through you. Through your human nature, sin works. That is how sin operates. It operates in your human nature. That's why Paul goes on to say, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh or my human nature, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. The wishing to present myself as an instrument of righteousness and not an instrument of sin is present in me. The wishing to do that, I make the right choice, but the doing of it is not. I don't actually present myself. I can't. I can't. I'm not strong enough. Sin works in the members of my body. Look at, I'll let Paul say it because he says it best. He says, I find this principle that evil is present in me that is in my human nature in the one who wishes to do good because I agree with the law that it is good in my inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of this law of sin that is in my members. 
wasn't he saying present your members? And isn't Paul telling us now that I see in my members that sin wages war in my members and it wins, it makes me a prisoner of sin. That's why in Romans 6, 19, it was saying you having been freed from sin, passive voice, you didn't free yourself because here Paul is saying it works in the members of my body and makes me a prisoner of sin. No, I need to be freed from myself. I need to be freed from this sin that lives in my human nature. And that's what Paul says. Who will separate me? Who will save me from this body of death? Then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that the same thing he said in Romans 6 when he, he said, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed. Having been passive voice freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You were slaves of righteousness. Does that sound like a free moral agent of righteousness? Or does that sound like what it said, a slave of righteousness. Well, the way to break free from being a slave of sin is to become a slave of righteousness. That's why in, in Romans 8, it says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death, the law of dynamics of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus set me free from the law of dynamics that always mastered me, just like the law of gravity will master a plane without force and lift and the other laws of dynamics so that it can beat the law of gravity. Well, without the spirit of the life of Christ, you can't beat the law of sin and death. It sets you free by making you a slave of that law of dynamics. You're either in one law of dynamics or the other, and that's why it's saying, in order that the requirements of the law might be fully met, in us who do not walk according to human effort, but walk according to the Spirit. In other words, those of us who walk not by the power of the human nature, but walk by the power of the Spirit. The power of the Spirit sets you free from the power of the human nature, which gets dominated by the power, the dominating power of sin. So it takes the power of the spirit to set you free from that. And then you won't walk according to the power of human effort, but you'll walk according to the power of the spirit. And that's what it goes on to say in Romans 8, 5. It says, for those who walk by the power of the human nature set 
here, here's what the English version says, set their minds on things of the human nature when th that's not correct. It, it's actually have their minds set on things of the human nature for those who are controlled by the spirit have their mind set on the things of the spirit for the mind controlled by the human nature is death but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace the mind that is enslaved by the human nature is death but the mind that is enslaved by the spirit is life and peace because the mind that is controlled by the human nature is hostile towards God for it does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. It can't do it. It can't free itself. And those who are in the control of the human nature can not please God. In your human nature, you cannot please God. When your mind is under the control of your human nature, sin that lives in your human nature overpowers your mind and causes you to fail at living the Christian life. But the mind that is controlled by the spirit, sin can't win against. The mind controlled by the spirit reigns and you live the exemplary Christian life. The whole point that was being made in Romans 6 is that you can't present yourselves to either sin or the spirit you you don't have that choice you don't have that power to do this it was posing the question and answering the question for us and i think we need to heed the answer the answer says we don't have the power to make that choice it takes the power of god to make the choice for us and it causes us to become an instrument of righteousness an instrument of god that's why in romans 8 13 it says for if you're being controlled by the human nature you must die but if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body you will live if by the spirit the spirit has to do it if by human nature you try and do it you die you sin and die the law of sin and death the law that you sin and you feel naked and ashamed and you, you feel condemned and it's the spirit that sets you free from that law of sin and death. And then it causes life to manifest itself 
right through your mortal body, the life of Christ. He is the one manifesting himself through you. But you see, just a simple understanding, a little bit of dry grammar, allows us to understand that we don't actively set ourselves free from the sin and actively present our members to God as an instrument for him to use. We are not the one actively doing that. We are the one passively doing that. God is doing that through us. God is doing that for us. It is the Spirit of God that is setting us free. That's why in Romans 6, 13, it said, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching. You have to thank God because he is the one doing it. You in your own human strength are like what it said in Romans 7, the wishing is present in me to do good, but I can't do good. That's why he says, nothing good dwells in me that is in my human nature for the wishing to do good is in me. The wishing to present myself to God is in me, but the presenting of myself to God is not in me. It takes the Spirit of God in me for me to present myself to God. That's why once you've learned all this, that's why in Romans 12:1 he says, I beseech you, brothers, he actually says, therefore, after you've learned all this, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present yourself as a living sacrifice, which is your natural order of worship. By the mercies of God, present yourself as a living sacrifice. Didn't it say, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will manifest life? Yeah, if by the Spirit you do that. If by the mercies of God, working in you through his Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, it'll be your natural order of worship. If by the mercies of God you present yourself as a living sacrifice, it'll be the natural order of worship. But you do it by God's power. You do it by God's mercy. We were all at God's mercy. Let me say that again. We are all at God's mercy. Apart from God, we can do what? Nothing. Apart from God, you can do nothing. That's why Jesus says, abide in me and I abide in you. For if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. John chapter 15, first five verses. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The idea that we are in control of whether we present ourselves 
to God as an instrument for him to use, or we present ourselves to sin as an instrument for sin to use, and we are a free moral moral agent that can do either one of those that we choose to do is bogus. It's not there. The Bible debunks that question in Romans 6, 13 and following to the, till actually Romans 8, 19, where in Romans 8, 19, it tells us, for the ancient longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. That's for each person to reveal the child of God in him. In other words, reveal the spirit. We're waiting eagerly to re- reveal the spirit. Each and every day we wait on the spirit to reveal itself. But it says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hopes that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption until the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, it says the creation itself was subjected to futility, not of its own will, not of its free will, but of the will of him who subjected it, the will of God who subjected us to futility, to this weakness in our human nature to defeat the sin that lives in our human nature. That is the futility that's been talked, is being talked about right now. The creation of itself has been subjected to futility, not to be able to present itself as a free moral agent, not to be able to present itself to God as righteousness or present itself to sin. It's been subject to futility, not able to do that in hopes that it would be set free from its bondage to corruption, bondage to corruption. It's enslaved to everything it touches falls apart. It's bondage to failure, bondage, not free, but bondage. It's telling us that we as Christians in our own human nature are in bondage. That's what Romans 7 was trying to teach us, wasn't it? The law is spiritual, but I am human, sold into bondage to sin for that which I'm doing. I do not understand the very evil that I don't want to do. This I do, and what I do want to do, this I don't do. I don't understand why I behave this way, but it's because I'm in bondage to sin and sin masters over me. You just look at the Romans 7, 
for yourself. It says it masters over me and makes me embarrass myself over and over and over and over again. It's constantly mastering over me. And that's the secret that has been hidden throughout all the generations of Israel under the Mosaic law. They never knew that what happened in Genesis 4 is happening to everybody out there. That sin masters each and every person, and we've all been in bondage to that sin in our own human ability to fight with sin. It masters us, and we need the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. That's what it says in Romans 8, 7, and 8. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, the Spirit does it, not human determination. It's the Spirit that puts to death the deeds of the body. And we wouldn't have understood any of this if it weren't for the fact that we were looking at verses that had active and passive voice and all those active in passive verbs were saying that we don't actively do good, we passively do good, and that the Spirit in us actively does good through us and for us, and we get the credit for what it actively does through us, and we become model Christians. But that's only by understanding that all the do's and don'ts that we as Christians do and don't do, we do passively because it's actually the power of the Spirit in us actively doing the do's and don'ts. It's the Spirit who gets credit for it. That's why I want to literally go on and bring us to 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 7, where it says, To each one of us is given a manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the common good. To one is given the manifestation of a word of wisdom, to another, the manifestation of the Spirit, faith, by that same Spirit that's given manifestations to everybody else. To another, the effecting of miracles. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But it's that one and the same Spirit who works all these different manifestations distributing to each person individually just as the Spirit wills. Please understand that Romans 6 was telling us that it's the Spirit that does for us what we can't do for ourselves. We couldn't present ourselves to sin or to righteousness or to God. We couldn't do that. It's the Spirit who does that for each and every one of us just 
as the Spirit wills to do. When and if the Spirit wills to do it through you, then the Spirit will do it through you, and you will manifest the Spirit of the living God. You will be, you don't have to present yourself, you will actually be at that time an instrument of God and not an instrument of sin. Because when the Spirit manifests himself, he will put away the instrument of sin, the body of death. He will defeat the sin that lives in the human nature and manifest himself. And we will be producing the fruit of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. We will be presenting those things to people as we manifest the Spirit, which is how the new covenant works, where God said, I'll make a new covenant with you, and I'll put my Spirit in you to do for you what you can't do for yourself. It's the Spirit all the time in Romans 6, and all of them are telling us that we don't do the good that's being done through us. We do it passively because the Spirit is the one actually actively doing it. So I hope this, this passage, like all the rest, helps to clarify this puzzle that Christianity is always trying to make clear. Christianity is constantly trying to get these mysteries as clear as possible. And actually, we do it by reading and understanding these Bible verses as clearly as possible. And part of that is to understand the difference between the passive and the active voice and grammar. So hopefully, by God's power, we can learn to depend on God's power all the more because we are dependent on it. And we are totally relying on the mercy of God to cause us to blossom. It's his mercy on us because we can't earn him blossoming through us or causing us to blossom, passive voice. We can't earn it. We're at God's mercy, just waiting on him to manifest through us. We are his vessels and we wait on him. That's the new covenant he made. And in Jesus' name, I pray that we can begin to understand these things and put them together so that we can understand the new covenant all the more because we need to understand that new covenant. So in your son's name, I, I pray for your, for anything that you'll give us, Lord for anything that you'll give us. Amen. Thanks, you guys. We love you.